All right. Well, hello, everyone. This is the Quality Matters uh, Business Visionaries Book Club. So I'm here again with Steve Lewis, uh, Rob Thompson, and we are talking about a book that I picked this time. Of course, I think these guys are regretting that I did it because it's a little long, a little geeky, but you'll get the highlights here. Mm -hmm. It is Out of the Crisis. It is um, probably the... Uh, I guess she calls close to the masterpiece of Edward Deming. Edward Deming's, uh, as I talked about in the podcast, otherwise is the father of modern quality management. Incredibly brilliant guy, maybe a little dry as an author, but incredibly brilliant work. So the book, as you see here, is quite thick and dense and tiny print and tiny margins. What year is it from, too? I think 86. So older than most of our listeners. Yes. Still horribly, horribly uh, vital for, for what we do today. Like mm -hmm. so much of the uh, modern philosophy of Six Sigma, all this stuff comes largely from the work of either Deming or Dran or, or Schwartz, some of these earlier kind of fathers, modern quality management. But uh, really, really good, useful book. So we're going to talk mostly about um, what he calls the 14 points today. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try not to ramrod the conversation because I know I have a little bit of tendency to do that. You're passionate about this stuff. Very I love passionate. this stuff. I Very love passionate. it. So I will let Steve get started here. So tell us, Steve, a little bit kind of about uh, your thoughts and uh, reactions to the book here. Okay. Yeah. Well, look. I thought I was really clever one day um, back when I was an engineer. I went to the client who was very demanding and I said, look, if you want it fast and cheap, it won't be good. Right. If you want it cheap and good, it won't be fast. And if you want it good and fast, it won't be cheap. Right. So fast, cheap, or good, pick two of the three. And we've all heard that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought I was brilliant. <laughs> and he says, well, I believe you can have all three. Yeah. And I was speechless. I didn't know what this after that. And I, but over time I came to come to that realization you can have all three, mm -hmm. and that was the primary tenet in this book, on the first page in that first chapter where he says, "Productivity increases as quality improves." Why? Because there's less rework. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's where quality comes into, uh, and it's not a, it's not a really a quality discussion topic. It's really a management topic. Yes. And yes. so I love that. Uh, so I don't think he talked about it in the book, but I saw a video about it where he went to the Ford Motor Company back in the early 80s when they were losing literally a billion dollars a year. And they brought him in as a quality consultant to fix a quality problem. Um, but instead, he went and just torched management. So 85% <laughs> of, of your problems at Ford are due to management. Yes. And that then he brought into these 14 points. Yeah. And so even though, yes, this was a, a, a tough read, um, those 14 points really resonated with me. Yeah. So I no. look forward to talking to you about this. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Rob, you are obviously in sales today, and that's the that's life correct. you live and breathe. Yeah, yeah. But you got a background here as well. I got a deep background in this. Uh, early on in my career, I was an expert on imaging processing and data entry. And when I was given the department, we were at about an 80% accuracy rate uh, in our work. And we were doing a ton of rework. So I was uh, told, fix it or you're fired. <laughs> and that's just the way it was back then. So I fixed it, of course, and dug deep into Deming and Duran and uh, total quality management processes and really helped design processes that helped us uh, achieve our goal. 
Right. And our goal was to get to about a, a 99% accuracy rate. Okay. And we tracked everything and, and really uh, implemented a lot of these tenants. We got away with uh, no more slogans and stuff. We really Wait, dug so in. So no defects. No. Perfect no. at first time. Uh, well, we did have one fu- slogan, do it right or you're fired. <laughs> but beyond that. It's we very here. motivating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Inspirational. Yeah. So but once we get past that, what we did is we reworked our systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the work would come in before, we'd have one person that entry and then send it off. Uh, we actually put in a system of a uh, dual entry mm-hmm. where one person entered it, another person did blind entry, and we put a quality control step in place hmm. where we were doing a random sample mm-hmm. of the work to identify what types of errors we were getting. Uh, once we identified the errors we were getting, we were able to dig into actual specific fields like everyone keeps messing up the state right. or they're not entering phone numbers yeah. right. And sometimes it was... A matter of what the difference between a European and an American 7 was. Okay. Uh, and then as time went on, we looked at technology. Uh, we moved to an OCR scanning process mm-hmm. where we redesigned our applications that people would fill out. And those applications would come in. We'd run them through an OCR scanner. They'd all be mapped to the fields and the system. And then versus checking and... Uh, doing quality on individuals, we're doing quality on the systems, yes. and we don't have to do rework when uh, the system couldn't read it. Right, and people would get just an image of what was on the document and then that entry field, and mm-hmm. do the correction. And at that point in time, AI wasn't a thing. Right, so you didn't have the ability to say, okay, the machine learning where it would get better and better. Now, if you look at OCR and document recognition the AI kicks in and if it sees that it's not reading specific fields the same Mm -hmm. way, now it it fixes that stuff. Uh, And over time, we got to about a 99.8% accuracy rate. And uh, before we kicked off, um, we were talking about productivity and everything that went through the roof. And I'm not part of that group anymore. But when I started there, we had about 2,500 people. And I think over time, by putting in systems and automation, it's probably about 300 people that do the same amount of work. Yeah, that, does, that doesn't surprise me at all. Now, you, you, most people listening to this probably hear automation, and that's the buzzword that's mm-hmm. kicking in for them. Mm-hmm. But really, the buzzword that people should be paying attention to here is systems. Mm-hmm. And that's something Deming spends no lack of time talking about, is really the difference in a system versus processes, you know, any of these little small things. Oh, yeah. You know, I was reading uh, recently... Because I'm, I'm not saying there's no place for Six Sigma. I'm not saying it's not a useful tool, but it is strictly a tool. Um, and so I was reading recently. I wish I could remember the details right now. But um, effectively, they did this study of uh, Fortune 500 companies that had had some significant implementation of Six Sigma. And what they found is that 80% of those companies that had the Six Sigma implementation um, failed financially within the next 10 years or had some major restructuring or some major downturn because they focused so much effort on a tiny, tiny piece of their business Mm -hmm. rather than focusing on it as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so all these pieces have to fit together. And so if you focus too much time on one little detail, like with your example, if you just spend all the time focusing on the state to begin with, you'd have missed everything else. Oh, yeah. But yep. we got the state perfect. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yeah. But everything else is wrong. The dollar wrong. Everything else. But so, yeah, to your point, it really drove down to a lot of leadership and prioritization. 
Yeah. Uh, we had a focus. It was a lot of work to do, but it was really looking at the overall process. And we were blessed. We had a good group of leaders that uh, pushed us, but also did it in a way that says, okay, you guys have a little bit of latitude uh, to make these corrections. Yeah. And I was laughing. We were talking beforehand uh, with you guys, and I've always worked in an office. <laughs> and the worst injuries I've ever seen in my office, I don't know, maybe a paper cut or <laughs> someone touches the coffee pot the wrong way. But you right. guys have worked in heavy industry where – like people can die, accidents oh, yeah. really bad happen. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's uh, you know, what we're we're talking about before uh, we started recording here, is um, you know, I had a guy once who had a back injury, and he, I mean, he didn't tell us about it. It was mm -hmm. like three weeks later. Now let me tell you, that was fun going back and forth with management, trying to figure out like, do we cut, count as recordable? Do we not? Is it work related? How do we know? And in the end, we, we wound up counting it as a work-related injury and, and taking care of him. But it's like, Dagum, why didn't you tell us about this three weeks ago when it happened? Mm -hmm. And really, the reason was straight was simple, is I was pushing this notion of no accidents, no injuries, because I thought that was a great way to do it. Let's rally people around it. But I didn't give them all the backup they need to know, like, what if something does happen and how do you actually achieve it? Right. Mm -hmm. The unintended consequences, people just don't report those incidents. Yes. Oh, yeah. People will adjust and they'll over, they'll just reprioritize things that they're going to talk play, about. Play the game. Play the game. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. 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 So I guess let's start by going through a few of the 14 points here. So obviously the one that stands out for me, and this is just because of my own personal experience and personal stupidity managing a program before, is I was all about the slogans because I thought that was, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put this slogan on the wall and tell everyone go for it. Mm-hmm. But, but it didn't work out real well. Um, you know, another one, drive out fear, because unfortunately those two kind of tend to go together, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if I don't live up to whatever the slogan or mantra is, and, then I'm going to get fired, which sounds a little bit yeah. like maybe where yeah. y'all came from. And I think the shift is, I think you can have a, a rally cry, mm -hmm. but not a slogan. You know, ah, I think I like that. The, when you look at the first purpose of creating purpose for the improvement, yeah, why are you doing what you're doing? And then the other piece is, if you dig into the psychology of how people are motivated, looking if they're externally or mm -hmm. internally motivated, some people are just motivated to do a good job. Yeah. And also to put the client first. So right. if you come up with that kind of, not a slogan so much, but a mantra that says why we're doing this and why it's important, I think it's it's different than saying like zero defects or... Yeah. Right. I noticed engineers are really good at following directions. Yes. Predicate on the fact if you tell them, explain to them why they do that first. Yes. Well, that'll totally change how you go about achieving the goal, which ultimately influences the output. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For We, we had a, a really poor time reporting system at one of my companies. And everyone had to get their timesheets in in order to get paid. Mm -hmm. So what did management say? Do your timesheet by Friday at noon or you don't get paid. Yeah. Well, people thought that was a punishment. But we explained, no, no. But you're... Do your timesheets by noon because if you don't, then you can't get paid. We don't have the system. The system won't work. You can't get paid. Right. When I explained it that way, we had it from virtually maybe like 50% of people doing their timesheets on time to about 100%. Yeah. Because they didn't want to be the person responsible for not letting their friend yes. not get paid. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. 
No, you know, I can't remember if it's from this book or another letter of Deming, but he had a a similar thing. It was actually Ford. Someone at Ford had called him because they were having terrible problems for whatever this plant was, uh, getting the paychecks out on time. And so it it was this um, issue of dual responsibility, right? So the employee was supposed to fill out their timesheet, but their supervisor was supposed to approve it. So what wound up happening is the employees wouldn't fill out all of the details, you know, in the detail necessary for payroll to run it. And the supervisor was expecting the employee would do it. The employee was expecting the supervisor to check it. Mm. And so in the end, it was something like 20, 30% of the uh, timesheets were screwed up by the time they got to payroll. And they could mm. never get payroll run. And so it was a very similar thing. They said, look, you just if it's not there, it gets sent back. And Deming had expected it to take, I think, like three payrolls to get fixed. Problem got fixed that first Amazing. payroll. Once those first uh, pay uh, uh, time tickets got sent back out onto the floor, Boom, everyone got the idea. Very cool. Isn't it interesting? You think that there's you, – you institute some redundancy to mm-hmm. k- make sure things don't don't fall through the cracks. Yeah. But by doing that, you basically let that one party assume that the other party is going to do it. Yes. So they don't do their job. Yes. And the other party thinks the same thing, and you have even bigger cracks in the first than you had yep. in the first place. Yep, yep, yep. So I think uh, that one actually came from the uh, point number three, cease dependence on inspection to achieve quality, which you know people find crazy. But that was the point here, is the supervisor was the inspection step for that timesheet. Mm-hmm. So everyone just assumed he'd, he'd find it if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I've run into that issue with uh, welders before. Man, some of these welders, they'll just put out absolute crap welds. And why do they do it? Well... He'll check it if it's bad. He'll let me know, and I'll just grind mm-hmm. it and fix it. They get paid per weld. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. It's, it's interesting stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Number three was the one that really blew my mind. Mm-hmm. That because I think I always think in terms of quality control is is the inspection part of it. No. Well, that's that that's at least identifying the problem, but that's not solving the problem. It's too late once you found it's it there. Late, yeah. It's too late. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need inspection steps, but how can you engineer your process so you don't need them? Mm-hmm. And, you know, man, we should have had like this recording before we started talking because it was like all the good stuff. Um, so <clears throat> you'd mentioned you know, something earlier about, you know, can't have it fast and good, right? Um, or cheap. But as you increase your productivity, quality increases or and vice versa. Um, so if you can increase the quality, let's say you have a, a hundred steps in the process. Well, that's a hundred opportunities for something to go wrong if you only get 10 steps in the process. So the more you can simplify that process and those critical points, you just reduce all sorts of needs for checks. Mm-hmm. No, I think the, the check, you don't do away with it, but it can be a random sample versus making it 50% of your process. And if you can reduce that number down, if you have a hundred people, and 50% of them are doing quality control, mm-hmm. and the other 50 are doing the data entry, and you come to some statistical sample that makes sense, you lower that number down to 10, put those other 40 people, slow them down, yeah. and have them do the data entry right, it helps the process along. The other piece on the dependency on, on the inspection, once you focus on inspection, you don't look at the process from the beginning. And for most of the industries I've worked in, the process actually starts with the client or with the design of the documents that mm-hmm. we're having people create. So if we didn't look at all the way back to look at the marketing pieces, look at the application design, look at where, and you got to think this is silly stuff, but when the printer printed out a new account application and put the fold over 
uh, where the person needed to write, <laughs> then it was harder to read. <laughs> so we had to step all the way back and actually redesign new account apps to make sure we accounted for where the fold was. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it, but when you have that mindset of focusing just on the capturing errors at the end, yeah. you don't back up to right. all the way everything that comes into play and do it. We, I remember spending hours in, on whiteboards is <laughs> balancing it back to the, when it starts. Like yes. what is the, the, the seed and then what happens from that seed all the way to the time when it's done? People aren't willing to readjust that plan. They just want to keep barreling forward and make changes after the fact. But that's the whole idea of the PDLC uh, cycle. You know, I'm uh, sorry, PDCA. I'm getting software development mixed up here. PDCA is Plan, Do, Check, Act. Mm-hmm. Now, when Deming wrote it, he he called it Plan, Do, Study, Act because mm-hmm. it's real intent on finding the source of the mm-hmm. problem. Doesn't work well. Plus, he was a consultant to get paid more using fancy words. It's a PhD. This is true. Yeah. yeah. This is true. <laughs> yeah. You bring up a really good point that it starts at the beginning. Maybe it's the client that really dictates what quality, what level of quality they're going to be expecting. Because if they are going for a competitive bid and they're telling everyone, hey, price is the king here. Mm-hmm. Whoever has the lowest price mm-hmm. is going to win. Well, they're basically saying we're we're accepting low quality yep. through that. Because if you yeah. have to low bid to win it, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. your engineers don't have enough time to design it. Mm-hmm. Your nope. SDM, your supply chain mm-hmm. is going to find the cheapest parts. You're going yep. to do it as fast as you can. You just get it out. Because you need to save that money. Now I'm going to bring. I'm going to interrupt you there for a second because you bring up a good point about balancing price with quality. Now I know from uh, a recent post of yours that you were flying a uh, lower cost airline uh, <laughs> versus flying like uh, Emirates or something like that. Now, when you look about cost, if if you were looking and evaluating the different airlines, and they said their on time record is a little lower, maybe you'd pay for that. Right, but let's say their crash rate was a little higher. Like, what? Where are you willing to give up price? Like, would I buy a thirty-three dollar round trip ticket if I knew there was only like a what percentage? Ninety-seven percent chance I'd get there in time, and three percent of the time we'd crash. Like (laughs) that, the equation you get to balance out. So, (laughs) you know, I talk about that when we do our uh, risk assessment. Part of the, the workshops we do a whole lot, and again, it all comes from mm. the, the stuff Damon teaches. Um, but this is everything we do on a, on a FEMA any any day of the week. Is like, what's the likelihood of occurring? What's the uh, severity? How bad is it going to be if something bad happens? And how easy is it to detect? And so if you can decrease any one of those three, you've significantly reduced your risk. Yeah. And so I use a silly, I love silly example. So I use the example of like if you're swimming at the beach. But what's the chance of getting attacked by a shark? Well, how big of a risk is it to get attacked by a shark? And how bad are the shark attacks? Yes. And so then you take a look at it. So let's just make the assumption if you get bit by a shark, you're going to lose a limb or you're going to die. So we'll give that like an 8 on the severity. Okay. Now I'd give that a 10, but okay. Well, okay. I'd say 10 is multiple people dying. Well, 10 is oh, – well, okay. okay. I would say a 10 would be one person dying. Yeah. So but then an 8 is just a losing a limb? Yeah. And then what's just the bite? Like say I just get a nibble on the leg. Like just <laughs> – Probably put that as six or something. Six. <laughs> What's a like a worse. two? What's a two then? Just like a nudge, a shock a, a, nudge, a thumb, you know, a hangnail. Okay, I give it a hangnail. <laughs> Scare the hell out of you. Yeah. And uh, so then you know, take a look at it. Well, how likely is it to happen? Okay. Well, we know that about as many people get struck by lightning as get bit by a shark. It's really? really low likelihood. Interesting. But then you think about well, the detectability. Now, yeah, but back up there for a second. That's probably that's misleading because you can get hit by lightning anywhere. 
you're going to be in the ocean to get bit by a shark. Correct. Okay, so, so I don't know take... if those stats will come correlate. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can play with I'm the numbers you on a little that bit. One. You can play with the numbers a little okay. bit. And so then we give, you know, well, what's the likelihood of it happening? Well, mm -hmm. if I never go to the beach, there's no likelihood. Yeah. So I'll give you that. Unless there's a Sharknado. Well, then, you know, it, all bets are off. <laughs> yeah. But I'd assume that would have happened last year. All the crazy crap oh happened my God. last year. Hey, shh. <laughs> as, a, as a 2020 type problem. Yes. Um, and then we'll talk about, like, detection. You know, so how easy it to even see if it's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So detection, I think that's what makes uh, the, the whole COVID thing such a, a scary thing for so many people is because there are people that silently carry it with neurosymptomatic. symptomatic. You can't mm -hmm. detect that crap. Nope. We don't like lack of detection mm -hmm. now if you're walking around your face turned purple oh covid all right fine well yeah. you may want to call it a hospital so you turn purple <laughs> but yeah so okay, it's just kind of basic stuff mm -hmm. but um no it's uh again all this stuff kind of comes from uh comes from the book here so you mentioned customers so i want to look this up is he says everyone um, whether he sees the customer or not has a chance to build quality into the product or the service mm -hmm. offered the people that see the customers have a role that is not usually appreciated by supervisors or other management. I gotta say, I used to be this guy. I hated the sales folks. Absolutely hated you guys. Um, well, so, so much hate. It was adversarial though. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I didn't do it. Oh man, the sales guys promised all sorts of crap that we didn't know how to deliver, and then we didn't know how to communicate what we were doing to them. And so it's just this back and forth, you know, BS. Yeah. You can figure it out though. You got it delivered. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Yeah. So. It's, not, it's not pretty, but you get it done. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that kind of goes to the, the point you're making. It's like, well, how do you get the best of all three worlds, fast, cheap, and good? Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, Toyota figured it out in the 70s yeah. and 80s. Yeah. yeah, and that's the a recurring theme in this. It's, it's about communication. Yes. So understand where everyone's – whose inputs or whose outputs and figure out really what is – where where is that line where you can actually deliver. Yeah. Um, when you – he was talking a lot about – uh, quotas and and so the again the unintended consequences if you have a quota you're gonna hit it and do whatever it takes to hit that number right similar similar for sales commission you tell mm -hmm. tell sales guys well, look you got to hit this number well they don't they don't they just try and get the, the deal done yeah right so they don't look at profitability at that point mm -hmm. high margin uh, they will pad their numbers if they want to, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so everyone's playing the game, and mm -hmm. but that's not that's not the real goal. And mm -hmm. so I guess that goes back to the first one: is yeah. this constancy of purpose? Yeah. What is our purpose here? It's not just to get crap out the door. No. Mm -hmm. I uh, every procedure um, we put out. I mean, it's not an uncommon thing to put a purpose statement in a procedure. Hmm. But I emphasize to folks that that purpose statement is justifying why this thing even exists in the mm. first place. Yeah. God only knows how much useless bull crap procedures and manuals we see on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And it's just nothing but fluff and extra requirements and stupidity. But if you that purpose statement has to justify why this procedure exists. Mm -hmm. And if you can't justify its existence, are you actually adding any value or just adding complexity to solve some problem that existed in someone's mind five years ago? Absolutely. I have worked, spent so many hours <laughs> fixing that issue in the bosses or someone's mind over the years. Luckily, I don't do that anymore, but I've done a lot. And then as a consultant, working with uh, companies is either there are misconceptions on what the symptom is versus what the cause is. Yes. And identifying the cause that's creating a symptom is critical because... Mm -hmm. 
people like you mentioned have a lot of misconceptions on what the uh, causes that's creating the symptom yeah and i think one of the things he talks about and deming and all these guys uh, if you're a uh, a stats person they are big on data analytics mm -hmm. and, and tracking and numbers putting in that overlay of tracking and data analytics on top of stuff leads you to identify really what the source is not just kind of fixed with a symptom yeah. a lot of times you fix with a symptom and then you create another problem versus actually backing up and look at the source and a lot of it comes back like nowadays you look at like the process associated with like lean and stuff mm -hmm. like that and asking the five whys and yeah. digging into root cause and stuff and that's i think the lean guys and a lot of the more modern stuff all they did is is repackage a lot of these kind of yes. stuff and do better marketing yes. and uh prettier powerpoints well and that's that's kind of point i argue about six sigma so often is it is a tool but it cannot you cannot treat it as the entirety of the management system mm -hmm. right it does not replace it is a component for problem solving or optimization of a component of a system and, and for those who don't know it's to get your product to a 99.9999 yeah yeah you so. want less than a one in 1.5 million defect right yeah. right and which is fantastic but yeah, what are the unintended consequences yeah. of, of really focusing on this one? Maybe you engineered all sorts of extras around here, but how much how much extra time did you add to that mm -hmm. process? Did you optimize the process or just the output? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I love data analytics, but I remember there was a quote that says there's lies, there's damned lies, and then there's statistics. Oh yeah. And and I used to sell investment <laughs> products to you. So you're, you're the king. <laughs> Uh, I had done a uh, one of my old companies. I had tracked every project that our engineers worked on, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and it was at the time it was a manual process, so it took a long time. But I came to the I, I found out that we were actually um, where we our estimates and our actuals were really close. So I was giving myself a pat on the back. Right. But through that tracking, I, I was able to kind of itemize the. The big jobs, sure. where everyone's looking at, versus all the little jobs that you know guys would come in. Hey, we need you to design this real fast or do right. this real quick. So we were really good at the big stuff because that's right. where everyone was looking. We were we were way overboard. Our estimates were like three times over, um, or we we underestimated the job like by three times. Yeah. For all the small stuff. Yeah. But the at the average we looked good. Right. But understanding that doing the right data analytics allows mm -hmm. us to say, hey, we need to shore this part up, all this small oh, yeah. stuff. Well, it's... Uh, is it, what they say, causation is not correlation or vice yes. versa? Yes. Well, and then you have, a, he makes a distinction between what we call common causes and special mm -hmm. causes. And so a common cause is just our system stinks and we're just going to have problems, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you're buying, you know, crap material because your supply team is told to find it cheap. So you get crap material, get all the inclusions and defects in your weld or whatever. Does not matter how awesome your welder is. If it's crap material, you're going to get so many crap right. welds. You're not going to do anything mm -hmm. about it. So you might be doing all these inspections thinking, oh, man, well, he's, our welders just suck. So let's put them through a new training program. Let's run them through this certification. Let's get extra inspectors. Let's do this. Let's retool the weld machines. Let's do all these things. You're treating it like there's something specific you can fix. No, the problem is that you're harping on your supply chain to buy the cheapest material possible to save money. Meanwhile, you spent 20 times that on, a, on the cost of rework. No, I, I digress here for a second. And 
I've used this example before. And before we get there, we have to do a shout out to Eagle Rare oh, and the yes. uh, folks at Buffalo Trace in the distillery. And uh, cheers to these guys <laughs> helping uh, motivate us and keep us moving tonight. But the story I'm about to tell you is relevant because when you look at even distilled spirits, or I've mentioned it before, we're talking with you guys, is working with the uh, Budweiser plant here in Houston. They wanted to get their process down to the point it was a man and a dog. <laughs> a man to push the button and a dog to bite him if he touched anything else. <laughs> and that's how they, they really worked on their process. And once you're doing anything in scale, like right. if you're looking to scale up your business or move to that next level, having these processes in place that keep track of that is critical. Yeah. Well, and again, that's the, I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the nth extreme of a good system. Yeah. But I mean, it really does. It boils down to your system. That's why we call ISO and API and all this stuff. We call them management systems and they are, to your point you made earlier, these are management systems. So just like Deming told Ford, if you want to improve the quality of your product, you got to get rid of the crap management. Yeah. It's not just the guy in the factory. No. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times, even in sales, a lot of times it's not following the right sales process it's not having the right sales manager to motivate and keep people on target yep it's not looking at the overall results look at the right results because a lot of times people look at just the the sales results but don't look at meetings or activities and stuff like that yeah there's all sorts of stuff that feeds into it but we just look at that defect and we treat every single defect we treat every single problem or complaint as some sort of special cause that acted outside of the system, mm-hmm. right? So someone made a, a bonehead mistake this day or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever the case may be. But maybe the problem really is we just haven't engineered our systems to prevent those things from mm-hmm. bubbling up to the surface. Now, he talks about the red bead experiment in here, and I, it's fascinating. There's videos on it. Go find it. I, I, I won't talk about it now. I have to hold myself back. But it's a really cool experiment because he basically goes into, like, to prove the point. It doesn't matter how good your people are, if they keep trying to fix every single little problem, you're gonna make it worse. And he calls it tampering. So you're tampering with the system by continually trying to tweak it. And we get so confused and we think that's continual improvement. And it's not. That's just tampering with the outputs of the system. We gotta go back and replan and reevaluate how we're gonna get better outputs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a good example of if this building is on fire, and you put out the fire, you did not improve the process. You just put out the yes. fire. Yes. So um, we have a, we focus, again, we focus on all of these risk assessments and, and, and inspections, but we don't get to the really the heart of, of, of what management has put in place. And if they don't explain, if they don't help everyone understand what their job is yeah, and what the ultimate goal is, and he, he talks about this a lot also, it's not about, the next quarter's results. No. Because that only gets you to the next quarter. Oh, yeah. You can do all sorts of dumb things to make next quarter look good. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a long-term play. And in oil and gas, we talk a lot about, we usually always talk about CapEx. I'll try to reduce that CapEx budget. Yeah. But we find out that the OpEx budget dwarfs that. Yeah. And so we talk in terms of Totex now, total expenditures. I've not heard that one yet. Not just capital, Ooh. not just operations, but the total expenditures. So mm-hmm. if you can reduce the total, whether it comes from that Correct. initial project or the next 30 years of your yeah of, of your expenses that's really the improvement it's a consultant 
<laughs> Usually we just call that bottom line expense. <laughs> you know, look, I'll, I'll tell you right now, like that was one of the reasons that I hated the term consultant, which is funny because now I are one. Um, but uh, I mean, we all know what consultants do. Like they're going to find every excuse they have to justify their job and they're going to milk that invoice for everything it's worth so they can get it again next month. And yeah, you got to find a way to uh, to eliminate that. I've always found that the consultants there was two two uh, buckets of consultants in my world. There was push up your tie guys, and then pull up your sleeve kind of guys. Yes. And I always like working with the pull up your sleeve yeah. kind of guys. They'd get in there with you. Well, hey, we had a couple of questions come in oh, here. Wow. So we have a uh, Bill Bellows asked. He said, "So given what you're explaining, is zero defects the ultimate level of quality?" Could be no. partially involved. It depends yeah. what you're doing. Yes. And does a continual improvement end at the achievement of zero defects? And no. I would argue no on both of those. There's yeah. a component of both. The zero defects thing, in my, in my estimation, I was always dealing with stuff that didn't have life or death consequences. When there's life or death consequences, zero defects is your only alternative. Yes. Like, you don't want to have be on the plane that that's that one percent that crashes every year right <laughs> so that's let's separate that out and all, especially you guys working all field services uh but for me working in financial services with numbers and stuff like that uh there's a risk reward that you get to whereas you can throw 500 people at a problem and get zero defects yeah but the expenses go up so high that no one's going to buy your product yes so there has to be some kind of design there and I think the other question, from my perspective, and you guys can uh, chime in, if zero defects is the end, it never is. And Deming even talks about continuous improvement because then you want to look at the process, how you can shorten up cycle times, yep. how you can improve throughput. How, yep. And then the other piece, and I don't think Deming, like back then, we didn't really care about people. But nowadays, <laughs> you know, in this day and age, you probably want to consider the people doing yeah. the job. Are they getting satisfaction? Are they happy? Yeah. Is it ruining their lives? Are you injuring people? Yeah. But those are things you want to look at well, as well. Well, I mean, it, well, Deming, though, he talked a lot about how his end goal was that people could take pride and ownership in their work, that you go home more fulfilled from the work you did than when you woke up in the morning. Now, I know that's, you know, for someone working in a factory, it's a little more difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. But, like, I mean, but isn't that basically what our safety culture aims for, is we want you to go home as physically healthy as you came to work. And Deming tried very early for the time. I want you to go home as mentally fit as you came when you, you mm -hmm. came to work today. No, I, I looked... To start this whole conversation, I started looking at definitions of what quality is. Oh wow! Ooh. And I came, and there was there was there was dozens. <laughs> and I'll let you have the last word. I'll let you define what it is. But this is one I like best, and it's not maybe it's not as traditional as you might expect. The on, quality is the ongoing process, so it never ends. No, but, um, the ongoing no. process of building and sustaining relationships. But that's really, I never thought of quality in terms of relationships. By assessing, anticipating, and fulfilling stated and implied needs, so it needs to work as you as you is it supposed to work. Yep. It, because I think uh, I think he this was one of the videos I watched of Deming where he says you might weigh something one time and okay now you know what that thing weighs, but if you weigh it a second time, it's going to be slightly different. Yeah. And so now what is now what does no one knows what it weighs anymore. 
and then you wait a third time. So you, you know, who defines what the defect is and yeah. what what acceptance is? And that's where you get a lot of really interesting mathematics that can come into play to figure out what are the acceptable upper and lower control limits. If I were to give someone advice that wants to read the book, I would probably argue for the average person, stop before you hit, stop before you hit page 200. You get to page 200, that's average people reading. Beyond page 200, he goes into all the mathematics to prove this type of stuff. He is a mathematician after all. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would go a step further. He's a statistician. Yes. Yeah, he was big into all that data stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, he's one of the reasons that it became what it is today. But but he did it before you had Excel. <laughs> yeah, this was all by hand, mm. all by hand. Uh, honestly, I don't think I could improve on that that definition. I think that's a pretty pretty darn concise a solid definition. definition Steve. It is. I mean, you take a look at the uh, ISO standard, and it surprises people in our workshops we do so often because I'll spend half of the time in a workshop talking about cultural ideas, and they're like, "Kyle, we're, I even had someone once chime in, Kyle, we're talking about ISO nine thousand one. Why are you talking about you know how happy people are?" I'm like, no, you don't get it. That That's so crucial. Mm -hmm. If you hate your job, guess what? You're not going to do good. You're not going to find ways to improve. And uh, it'll probably be the last thing I'd talk about here. So uh, Deming makes a point, and it's, it's a very valid point. And Rob, you can probably chime in on this from a sales perspective, is sometimes the most, not sometimes, most of the time, the most critical uh, facts we need to know are unknowable or unmeasurable. So how, what is your true perception in the marketplace? How do you really know that? Yeah, as a provider of uh, products and stuff, not knowing uh, really what your clients want or need. And I get into all the time with people. Oftentimes, salespeople interpret, uh, send me some information, uh, email me that, or something of those uh, lines as a positive. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, you just got blown off. That's done. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> that person's going to ghost you for life now. Yeah. You're blocking your number right now. Yeah. Uh, because you did not provide enough value up front. Mm -mm. You didn't lock in a next step. You didn't do all those things you have to do. And people are, are conflict adverse. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to say, you know, Steve, this sounds really good, but I don't think it's for me. And Because you're afraid you're going to follow up with another pitch. Yeah. And yeah. so how do you get that actual perception? Mm -hmm. Or with your employees, how do you know if the people working for you are actually happy in the job you're doing? I mean, it's a very rare breed of people that go, you know what, Steve? This week sucked. That's that's mm -hmm. the cultural side of it. Yeah. Because uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, we talked about measure what matters. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, and, and he is very derogatory towards annual reviews and assessments, mm -hmm. um, as was John Doerr and, and Andy Boyd. But they realized it's not just that one conversation Correct. it's it's a continuous conversation all year long yeah and um and so when if you establish that kind of culture in a company then you don't have to ask am i doing a good job because right. you'll know you'll know what to do yeah because it's based on how what culture tells you to do mm -hmm. one of the things while we're on that topic uh working with the team at barkman working with the reports one of the things that separates us from other assessments that are out there is a lot of assessments measure your usual, kind of mm -hmm. how you show up. One of the things we do is we go a little deeper is measure your needs. Yeah. Those hidden needs, like, and the example we use a lot of times is like a tree. Mm -hmm. You can see the tree, mm -hmm. but you don't see the roots. Right. So you don't see what is actually feeding that tree mm -hmm. and giving it its energy. 
Yeah. And to your point earlier, once you identify those needs of your people and the people mm-hmm. you work with, you have better relationships. And uh, folks have argued and understand the argument is, well, so people are so incredibly different. I'm like, they are, but people are also a lot alike, and people do have choice in where they work. So if you have a certain – yes, a creeper. There you go. So <laughs> if um, if you have a certain culture in your company that just doesn't fit with someone, it should be pretty obvious. This mm-hmm. isn't where I need to work. I, mm-hmm. I don't fit in here. And let them go on. In fact, I would argue help them find that next job. Say, yeah. look, this really isn't a fit. Are Jim you... Collins talks about having the right people on the bus. Yes. Yeah. So. I mean, all this stuff gets intertwined. All of it gets intertwined. So, no, there, there's a lot of lot of fun ways. You know, something I started doing recently is um, for the small team we have is, and I intend to do this as we grow, is I have them fill out a weekly report. Now, the weekly report's not what you would expect. Um, it's just a little Microsoft form. It's eight questions on it. And I ask basic things like, how stressed out were you this week? How was your workload this week? What was your high of this week? What was your low? What were the goals you set for the week that, and what'd you achieve? It's really all I care about. And so I just, it takes like five, 10 minutes to fill out. And so I'm, that's something that I'm wanting to do so I can kind of get a better sense and feel of it. Cause I know me, I'm a workaholic. I'll probably be here till midnight tonight working on other stuff mm-hmm. after we finish the, this, uh, this chat, but I don't want everyone else to think that they have to work that way just because I do, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's so easy to, to get caught in those little mindsets. Yeah. So that's all I got guys, unless you had anything else. Now, I think one of the things we didn't focus on a lot was the people aspect of it. Yeah. And the people's a big part of it with any organization. So just I mean, as, if you, as you're going through this, uh, the stats, the processes and stuff are all great, but make sure you're keeping your people motivated and happy and, yeah, in the right direction. I think that's a that's a good point to end on. I, I don't think I can improve there. Yeah. So if for everyone listening, if you haven't already, make sure to take a minute. Obviously, stuff you got to do. Hit subscribe, like, comment. We want to know what you think. We're we're really wanting to do a lot more with the uh, book club here. Um, Steve's got some fun ideas, maybe some ways we can restructure releasing this and mm-hmm. have a little bit more fun with it. But uh, let me know what you like. If you got any recommendations for future books, let us know. Or bourbons. If you yes. have a bourbon you want yeah. to try. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We, we will we'll, we'll, if we can find it at the local specs, we will try it. There yeah. you go. Take it easy, guys. Good night.